Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., they help high achievers enjoy their lives more fully, manage their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Freeway Exit is a podcast from KPBS Public Media about the past, present, and future of San Diego's freeways. Learn the forgotten history of the San Diegans who built our freeway network and the activists who fought against them. Freeway Exit explores exciting and radical solutions for building a more sustainable and equitable San Diego. Listen and follow Freeway Exit from KPBS wherever you get your podcasts. The team at Education First believes the world is better when people understand each other. Since 1965, Education First has helped millions of people explore new countries and cultures and see the world. You can join Education First by opening up your home to an international student and get paid for it as a host family. Education First has a school in Point Loma actively recruiting host families. Learn more at efhomestay.com. That's efhomestay.com. I regret not saying this, but I love pandas, and you guys suck. You do love pandas. <laughs> like, I saw that. a video of a panda rolling around, and it was just so good. <laughs> pandas are like... So I was like, how do these creatures survive in the wild? Pandas are like nature's trust fund kids. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by the Managing Editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. And hello, Jacob McQuinney, our reporter. How are you? I'm doing good, Scott. Coming up on the show this week, it's our last podcast before the biggest, most important, craziest primary election ever. That's well, sarcasm, folks. <laughs> we'll give you some of the things to watch on the election night. Andrea also moderated a San Diego mayoral debate, although the mayor wasn't there. She got a few takeaways. We'll talk about those. Escondido voted this week on a new homelessness policy. Proponents call it public safety first approach. That's a dig at housing first. Uh in case you didn't catch it. I see, I see. And North County reporter Tiggis Lane is going to come in and talk about that and a few other things going on in her beat. Finally, Jacob had the story this week of a middle school math teacher. He was accused of sexual harassment for years, so they moved him to a class with younger, less attractive girls, but allowed him to quietly retire later. Jacob will share the details of his investigation. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. But first, we have new workshop dates coming up for our Parents' Guide to San Diego Schools. This is your chance to meet us in person 
and ask us anything about San Diego schools. How many times do people ask questions and we have no idea what the answer is? That is a great question. We will. (laughs) There were a couple instances. No, they're really great questions. And we can use them to to do research and stories. Yeah, there's plenty of times. Jacob and I did our first workshop, and um, there's plenty of times where he was like, oh, I should probably report that. And so I was making (laughs) a mental note of the stories that he owes me. You know what you guys need to do is before you get to my age, realize that mental notes don't work. Because at some point, they don't. Like, it's weird. Like, I used to have mental notes, and I could remember conversations vividly. Yeah. And now I just, I I don't remember anything. We have a while to get there. Scott, like I told you, (laughs) spiritually, I feel at least 41, maybe like 42. Stop it. Don't say things like that. It's insulting. I do. I do. I mean, and to be fair, that's only like eight years from now, but. (laughs) Okay. You can get hard copies of the guide to see details and RSVP now at VOSD.org slash schools. That's VOSD.org slash schools. This one's really taken off. There's all these cards, you know, that we put in the middle that say, send this back with your feedback or questions or whatever. And they're coming in already. Really? Uh, yeah, it's great. There's Usually a, it takes a while. I know. There's it. This, this, this is The guide worked. <laughs> Six years in. <laughs> People like it. They get it. They look forward to it. They want to talk yes. about it. They, you know, the places we distribute them ask for more. It's like... I we made a product that people want. It's awesome. <laughs> this is Scott doing a dance on like the all of the naysayers that doubted his his idea to to create this. No, six years here's ago. the thing: for for 20 years almost, I have grinded in this job. Like one reader after one reader, one mm-hmm. donor after one donor. You know, you two mm-hmm. steps forward, one step back, yeah. all the time, and. I always dreamed that there would be this like one story, like a Pulitzer Prize, or a, a, you know a, a a big sort of product or a T-shirt or TV series or something that would just like everything would get easier after that. Like the whole like the whole world would be like, wow, great job! Here's a bunch of money, <laughs> and and it never worked. Nothing ever worked amazing. It always just was just like, no, you still have to grind. It yeah. was all, and. And to have a product, it's not going to, you know, change our lives, like as far as like pay for everything or whatever, but to have a product that people really want, that they support and sponsor, that pays for itself and that, you know, people are excited about getting, like that's just really fulfilling. I'm very, very happy with that. You know what they say, Scott, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) I would say that takeoff happened after I took it over. (laughs) Sure. There's this guy, Paul Mitchell, he does, uh, he runs a company called Political Data Inc. in California. And he's just this expert at all of the facts about who voters are, how they tend to vote, when they tend to vote, how much, how often Republicans vote earlier than Democrats, uh, all of these things. Like, it's it's incredible. And, and these campaigns pay him. They're like, we would like to reach, you know, all the Democrats in this district who have voted every election in the last three elections or something. And he'll be like, okay, here's the list or all that stuff. He just, he, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, just a mine of great information. So he told Politico the other day that this is on track to be the lowest turnout primary in quite some time. If not ever, there are only 8% of people so far voters had turned in, their ballots as of a couple days ago. 
and it was just trending really low. Now, a lot of people might say, well, boy, people don't care. Well, it's not the most exciting primary election. Yeah, the vibes are pretty low. Yeah, it's fine. It's dialed down. There's no presidential campaigns of any significance. It's not like Trump's going to lose California or Biden's going to lose California. There's no Biden-Clinton war. There's no Trump, you know, Haley's, I'm sorry, she's probably not going to make it. And so there's <laughs> there's a very little sort of major enthusiasm. And so somebody asked me the other day, like, how to, you know, how to think of their ballot. And I said, the way you should think about it is look at all these races and decide who should go to the runoff. You might have a preferred candidate who's going to win the primary, but probably they're going to win the primary mm-hmm. or they're going to advance. They're guaranteed to advance. Mm-hmm. So you should pick who should go with them. So like in the U.S. Senate, it seems pretty clear that Adam Schiff is going to go to the runoff. And so the question is, who should go with him? The Republican Steve Garvey, first baseman for the Padres and, and former player at the Dodgers as well. He's a Republican. Schiff would love to run against him, has been trying to do that. But uh, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee also want that. Two Democratic Congresswomen, they're excited about that role. And so you could pick Garvey or Barbara Lee or Katie Porter. If you know, if you even if you support Schiff like that, that that's probably the more interesting decision that your vote might actually have a, have a difference in mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You get it? Yeah. I gotta say, like really picking or really having like an easy race past the primary will just like continue to be really boring. And so like picking like, who do I want my preferred candidate to like, you know, battle out will be most interesting, right? Because that only makes your preferred candidate better or like pushes them to maybe say things that they might not say if it's like an easy race. Yeah, yeah. And who who they're facing up against in the general election will inevitably change some of their policy positions, right? If if Schiff is is facing Harvey, right? If Schiff is facing Harvey. Garvey. Maybe Garvey, excuse me. Um maybe there's some, you know, moderation to the center if she's facing someone like Lee or a porter who are more to his left, maybe maybe that doesn't happen. Right. So I think um, let's go down and talk about a couple of these. So let's say you are uh, a Mayor Todd Gloria, just like fangirl. And you're like, I want Mayor Todd Gloria. So you might look at the ballot and say like, oh, I'm just going to choose Mayor Todd Gloria. But Mayor Todd Gloria's friends actually want something else to happen. They know he's going to make the runoff. And they've been continually pushing uh, this candidate, uh, Jane uh, Glasson. So the, the... Political Action Committee, New San Diego, put out yet another mailer in support of Jane Glasson for mayor. She's a Republican. She has no website. She's raised no money. She's She managed to get all of the signatures and such to get on the ballot. So she's she's got that going. But she's just really unsophisticated as a candidate. But he continually, or this, this PAC continually pumps her up. And they put out another mailer this week that says uh, Jane Glasson is the one who will protect single family homes and they have a picture of Donald Trump saying America's suburbs are a shining example of the American dream where people can live in their own homes in a safe pleasant neighborhood the left wants you to take wants to take that away wow good for her I didn't realize she was endorsed by Trump <laughs> see the the art artistry in these mailings <laughs> is really something and so so if you're a mayor Todd Gloria 
you know, fangirl, you might want to support her to get her over this. Because that's clearly what they're trying to do because they don't want to run against the other three. Exactly. So uh, those are Larry Turner, the the police officer, and Genevieve Jones-Wright, the uh, former public defender, the attorney. And she, uh, this week, got the endorsement of Monica Montgomery Stepp, the now county supervisor who used to be the city council member in District 4 in the San Diego City Council. And that was a pretty, I don't think that's unexpected. They're allies. They've been friends a long time. Still a pretty harsh dig on the on the incumbent mayor. A, mm-hmm. a, a tad, I would say. And also they're, um, you know, they're included with like the announcement that she endorsed her. Obviously there was a statement and um, I had included this in our morning report, but basically um, in the endorsement statement, uh, Monica Montgomery said, quote, San Diego deserves a leader who prioritizes the people over power. And Genevieve brings the vision, dedication, and leadership needed to move San Diego forward. So the real question in the mayor's race is, again, Todd Gore is going to make the runoff. If he didn't, that would be amazing. (laughs) But no, he's going to make the runoff. So the question is, who's going to go with him? Yeah. Police officer Larry Turner, Genevieve Jones-Wright, Jane Glasson, and the other one is Dan Schmikowski, right? Mm -hmm. So Uh, 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 how do you you pronounce it? Dan Schmikowski. Schmikowski. So you you met all these uh, yes, uh, folks. I did the other on day, Saturday, except for the mayor didn't come. No, and I've met him before, but he wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what were your takeaways? I would say we have two very real candidates, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was I. You know, the takeaway from feedback of people in the audience. Uh, multiple people came up to me. We're like, wow, we really have like two people that we can pick from, except to- for the mayor. Yeah, to run up against uh, yeah. Todd Gloria. So that would be Jane and Dan, right? <laughs> that would be Larry Turner and Genevieve Jones, right? Uh-huh. Oh man, um, I got those both wrong somehow. <laughs> it it was it was it was interesting. I mean, um, Genevieve Jones, right? And I would say Larry Turner, um, you know, had sort of similar takes on certain things. I think overall, like obviously they're both incredibly critical of um, Todd Gloria and the job he's done and how he's run our city. Um, You know, where they differ is maybe Genevieve Jones, right? Leans uh, more left on certain things um, than Larry, obviously. Yeah, but he had some things to say the other day where he's like, I like uh, Genevieve Jones, right? Uh, I I agree we need police reform. I'm not sure the police were so excited about that. (laughs) <laughs> but he was we need, you know, criminal justice reform. There's there's these old scars and traumas in this community. He's clearly, you know, picked up some of that and, yeah. and wants to talk to her about it. It's a pretty chill group though, I gotta say. Like they are were all like super friendly with each other uh-huh. and like there was no you know, sometimes at these debates, like I was I was like practicing beforehand um, with my boyfriend. I was like, OK, like I'm going to cut you off and this is how I'm going to like, you know, like calm yeah. down a fight between the candidates. And none of that. I mean, I certainly cut people off because they went over their time for and their responses. Yeah. OK, let me ask you. This. So you did have a moment to talk to them about tax increases. So yes. there's several, I don't, uh, there was a great Michael Smolens column the other day in the UT rounding up just all of these different movements afoot. So there's the stormwater tax mm-hmm. that Shawnee Lo Rivera, the council president, wants to put forward for the November ballot. There's a full cent, cent for, or penny for progress tax. Mm-hmm. This is just a general tax increase of on sales tax. Uh, so it'd be a whole cent. So it would go from 7.75% sales tax rate in the city of San Diego to 8.75%. You buy something for 100 bucks, you can pay $8.75 instead of $7.75. Mm-hmm. You got that? So 
that's going forward, at least the mayor uh, indicated he supports it. Mm-hmm. He hasn't said anything about the stormwater tax yet. I'm very interested in, in what his real take is on that. Mm-hmm. And there's this sand ag tax increase. So the countywide tax increase, which would add another half cent on top of that. And that's already on the ballot. The other two aren't on the ballot. You mm-hmm. asked the candidates about that and what they said. Yeah. That came up during um, a point where they were speaking to the flooding um, and, and infrastructure needs for the city. Now, it was interesting because when I originally asked the question, I had grouped in all of these um, all of like these initiatives, right? So like both the city sales tax, the county sales tax, and the stormwater tax when I asked my question. But later I clarified um, with Genevieve Jones-Wright that what she was speaking to was specifically the sales tax only. Um, so the I'm not cities. sure the cities and the counties. Uh-huh. I'm not sure where she stands on stormwater yet either. Okay. Um, but she did. She was like, I am not going to ask like you, San Diego, and speaking to the audience um, that you know, you pitch more from your pockets. Um, and Larry has like said similar things. Uh, he said that to the UT too. So that's, that's good. That's fine. And as, as far as like a respectable position, mm-hmm. but the city is facing out uh, now just revealed $167 million shortfall. It's only going to get wider as raises continue to take impact as positions continue to get filled. Now the first year of a budget deficit they're usually able to patch pretty well with just one-time cuts and these little tricks they have but if it continues as a structural deficit where they're literally set up to take in more money or less money than they're set up to spend then it can it can be a real problem many years into the future and so you kind of have to ask these these folks like what would you do if you're not going to raise taxes what are you going to do? And they always say, well, we're going to find waste, fraud, and, yeah. and you know, we're going to cut things that we don't need. It's like a really easy answer, but it, it really demands that they say like, okay, I would cut these giant areas because basically the, the city budget is, is a giant slice of public safety and then a bunch of little things on site. So you're going to cut police and fire are you going to cut uh, uh, firefighters? Are you going to probably not? So you could you'd almost have to cut vast sections of the rest of it just to to avoid mm-hmm. cutting those things. So if you don't want to raise taxes, fine. But uh, I think we got it. We're entering the part part where you have to start saying specifically what you would cut otherwise. One hundred percent. So that's the question for the mayor. Now the similar question is who should go to the runoff with some of these other races? So in district. It's, it's always the odd versus the even. So this is an odd number year. So there's District 3, which is uh, Councilman Stephen Whitburn. He's running. Now, the question, he's probably going to make the runoff. Again, if he didn't, <laughs> wow. But the two running against him, Kate Callen and Colin Cusack, are the two prominent candidates running against. I was shocked to see the UT endorse Colin Cusack mm-hmm. uh, the other day, the Union Tribune. Kate Callen is really representing the protect neighborhood sort of vision. Colin Cusack is is like Genevieve Jones, right? Coming from the left or mm-hmm. or from the idea of like the the criminalization of homelessness in particular is a is a real outrage. What and was their reasoning for their endorsement of her? They they sort of weakly endorsed all three of the the challengers to Whitburn, but but landed on on Cusack because they said that she was a competent 
uh, you know, challenger to the status quo in 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 uh, in City Hall, which mm-hmm. which was an interesting perspective because again, they they seem to shine a light on all, all of the challengers and basically just said we don't need another person to just go along with with the flow. Yeah, it was a pretty solid dig at the incumbent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whitburn. it was it was more of like a panning of him than than a super, super wholehearted endorsement of Colleen. At least that's how I read it. Yeah, so there's definitely a choice there. Who should move on to the runoff? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's something to watch over there. District 9 is the same thing. This is the city council seat where council president Shawnee Rivera is the incumbent. There are two candidates running uh, against him. Now, again, he will probably make the runoff. But the two that would like to go with him are Fernando Garcia and Terry Hoskins. Terry Hoskins is the police officer who just retired. You've met him a few times. He's the one that didn't get the endorsement of city attorney Mara Elliott, but she is going to go to rally for him. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. They're just buds hanging out. Just old friends worth rallying for. <laughs> uh, so that's another question there. Terry Hoskins versus, again, Fernando Garcia. Who runs? Uh, who who makes it to the runoff? Uh, this goes down. There's a couple other ones really interesting. So there's everybody's going to have to choose between two city attorney candidates, but they're both going to make the runoff. They're both on the ballot, and they're the only two on the ballot. They're both going to make the runoff. So you kind of wonder like, why do I have to do this? And I'm, I'm my answer to you is this: I have no idea. <laughs> the county makes it so if there's only two uh, people running, they they just go automatically to the November race. But for some reason, the city hasn't made that little change, and so you have to choose now if. The if one of them loses that, they're not going to be happy because it looks like they lost because they did, but it has no particular impact. So you can it's have like a vibes. Vote. It's a vibes vote. Uh, so then, but there are a couple other really interesting races. So in the North County to replace Marie Waldron on the assembly, she used to run the uh, assembly Republican caucus. She's uh, termed out, and there are two really prominent Dem or Republicans running. Obviously. Talk show host Carl DeMaio mm-hmm. and um, Andrew Hayes, who's uh, the uh, one of the top staff members for Senator Brian Jones, the Republican, and one of the leaders of the of the Senate Republican Caucus. So uh, DeMaio wants the Republican wants a Democrat to go with him, so he can easily dispose of that race and just focus on reforming, tra- transforming California, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hayes is not a fan of DeMaio. They've both been trying to prove who's the most Trumpy of them both, who's who hates immigrants the most, that kind of thing. Um, and so that'll be... <laughs> what, a, what an interesting like, room to be in with those two people. Yeah. You know, I hate immigrants the most. No, Just I do. Be, I should be fair. They, they, uh, they're, they're very critical of the asylum-seeking yes, issue yes, and, yes, uh, and illegal immigration. Uh, and then uh, across over to the coast... There's uh, there's no truly uh, intensely competitive congressional races except for uh, this question of who's going to go to the runoff in the 49th congressional district. So uh, Mike Levin is the incumbent, and he will make the runoff almost certainly. The question is who will go with him. Margarita Wilkinson, who used to run uh, Entrevision in San Diego, she is uh, a journalist, sort of media executive. She's very hostile and thinks she's the most hostile to illegal immigration. Uh, she is trying to out sort of uh, right flank the uh, the other candidate, Matt Gunderson, 
who made a big push for assembly last uh, last cycle, you might remember. Uh, he's, he's, I think, more on the sort of moderate um, uh, side of things. And he's, he, you know, he tried to position himself that way so he could take on Mike Levin in this purplish district. But uh, he's, uh, he's got to fend off Wilkinson first. So that's a really interesting one to watch. Like who's going to advance to the runoff in that race or not uh, is going to be uh, a big question there. So. Okay, you remember City Councilwoman Andrea Cardenas, City Council of Chula Vista, to be clear. Mm-hmm. She and her brother, Jesus Cardenas, a political consultant, used to be chief of staff, Stephen Whitburn. They were both accused of this fraud that they, uh, the district attorney said they perpetrated on the Paycheck Protection Program. Yeah. Yeah, COVID loans for businesses. Yeah. PPP. Basically, yeah, if you agreed to keep your employees employed during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, they would give you this loan that they would not make you repay so that you could keep them on staff. Saved a lot of jobs, saved a lot of businesses. They applied for one, claiming 30-plus employees in their operation that turned out to be employees not of their operation, <laughs> but of a cannabis dispensary. That just still feels so brazen. I, I, I mean, I just can't. I can't even imagine. I would be so nervous. I know, right? <laughs> right? Just at a base level, uh, it's filling like that nervous paperwork. doing like your own taxes. I, and you're like, <laughs> I, I would, I would be nervous doing crimes. Yeah, personally, uh, that may be a <laughs> like, hot take. You're like sweating. Like, no, these are my employees. <laughs> yeah. but they, they did it. But then they not only did it, they took the money and she just put it right in her campaign, right into her pocket. Uh, basically, because she loaned her that campaign money. That would also make money. me nervous. <laughs> yeah, and she loaned her campaign money and then repaid it with this. And also, it said like personal expenses and to pay off credit card bills, which mm-hmm. I would love to know what personal expenses. Like, yeah. we're talking like Gucci bags or like new <laughs> furniture. Or just... What? Food, maybe. Who knows, right? Know. So the the... Now, they have essentially acknowledged... This happened. They pleaded guilty, and the district attorney has agreed to basically uh, give them probation, and they're going to have to pay back some amount. They haven't established or, or disclosed how much, and they, at least Andrea Cardenas, can argue in the next uh, uh, little while for it to become a misdemeanor while um, her brother has to complete the probationary term for two years before he can do that. Now, District Attorney Summer Steffen is one of those who's really fired up about this organized retail crime thing, right? This this wave of people just walking into these stores, grabbing a bunch of stuff and walking out or otherwise organizing this. And, you know, got to put our foot down and say, like, those are felonies. Those are not misdemeanors. They need to be cracked down on because our permissive law enforcement environment has allowed this to happen. These guys took $175,000 with what is very clearly now an acknowledged, they have now acknowledged it as a theft. And they, they stole it by fraud. From taxpayers, and and now she has given them a path toward it just being a misdemeanor. Like if they if somebody had walked in and stole in some brazen thing one hundred seventy five thousand dollars of iPhones, people would be like, "Rah!" 
<laughs> and Summer Stefan would have a, a press conference out in front of like, we've got to put our foot down on this. Like this, this poor Apple store just lost $175,000. This was taxpayers. They took $175,000 from. Now they've admitted it was a, it was a theft. And they're like, probation? Well, when it, when it comes to stuff like this, it's, it seems like law enforcement officials, whether it's the DA or whoever else, always seem to care a little bit more about places like the Apple Store than federal dollars. I mean, it doesn't make any sense because the Apple Store presumably can recover from a loss, but, but federal I, dollars, we're, we're going to be have to, having to pay back for a long time. So. I get it. The, the organized retail, retail crime has an element of anarchy to it that is really uncomfortable, mm. right? People yeah. people see it as like, oh, we can't we can't have a trust society of any kind, right? Like that's the that's the visceral thing you're tapping into is that like nothing is nothing is normal that people can just go grab stuff yeah. and like and, seeing there is a video on Instagram of these guys at Fashion Valley running into the Nordstrom's right. where they have a small like Chanel boutique store and they just ran in and grabbed like all these Chanel bags, which is right. easily above the amount of like how much you can steal, but okay. It's still a felony, yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, but they just like ran out of the store and you could just see like the store workers are like, what, you know, like it was crazy yeah. just to like see that there is like a chaos and like violence Yeah, and attached. so I can see how that's more unsettling to the public than like this, than this, this invisible crime really, right? Like it's mm -hmm. like, it's not invisible because we know about it now because they did suss it out. Congratulations to the prosecutors and whoever, you know, helped them do that. But it still is, it doesn't create for some reason the same unsettling thing that she feels like she needs to you know, take a big stand on. See, I just do not, I cannot comprehend that, right? It's right. one thing for a dude to run in and jack a purse or a phone, yeah. but for elected official, officials for whom are supposed to be, you know, role models or, right. or who are supposed to be leading our society to jack $175,000. From the U.S. government. From us. Yeah. From, from taxpayers yeah. from from the federal government yeah. that that is much more a, a red lights flashing oh no i get it that's what i'm saying it's just i i i think that dichotomy is really interesting mm -hmm. right? why like, even offer a plea I, so i, I mean you never I know maybe the case was weak somehow you know maybe they didn't want to take it to trial it is it's it, i would love to have her on and maybe it's mm -hmm. time we've had her on before about like what is the distinction here like why is why would you not take this one to trial? Yeah. And the the attorney for sometimes you see these these slaps on the wrist because the politician has agreed to resign and that's part of the deal. Mm -hmm. But this in this case Andrea Cardenas and her lawyer said that was not the case. She did not agree to resign last week because of the charges or mm -hmm. any plea deal. Mm -hmm. And so either she's not telling the truth there or that wasn't part of it and that can't be considered part of the sort of punitive measures of this settlement. So. And not only that, she's still on the ballot and her lawyer said that if she were elected, she would serve. Well, that's the interesting part of this. If this is it and this is packaged and over, this is recoverable, absolutely. Jesus Cardenas and Andrea Cardenas are going to be back if this is it. I hope they are. <laughs> this kind of stuff is fun. It makes, it makes living fun, you know. Well, but but I do agree. We should have. It's we like you'll have... have a South County reporter to write about them. Are we going to talk about that? 
Uh, in any case, we we absolutely should try to get Andrea Cardenas on the podcast. You know, maybe she can pick some stuff up from the dispensary for us. Our next one is a Spanglish one, right? See what we can do. Our next happy hour? Yeah. Wow. We're just breaking news here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Freeway Exit is a podcast from KPBS Public Media about the past, present, and future of San Diego's freeways. Learn the forgotten history of the San Diegans who built our freeway network and the activists who fought against them. Freeway Exit explores exciting and radical solutions for building a more sustainable and equitable San Diego. Listen and follow Freeway Exit from KPBS wherever you get your podcasts. The team at Education First believes the world is better when people understand each other. Since 1965, Education First has helped millions of people explore new countries and cultures and see the world. You can join Education First by opening up your home to an international student and get paid for it as a host family. Education First has a school in Point Loma actively recruiting host families. Learn more at efhomestay.com. That's efhomestay.com. This week, the Escondido City Council voted to pass a new strategy to tackle homelessness. They are calling it Public Safety First. I think that's an obvious dig at housing first or homes first. Escondido has uh, at last count 304 unhoused people. It's the largest homeless population in North County. Uh, our North County reporter Tiggis Lane is in studio. What's up Tiggis? Hello. So tell us what does this mean? What is it actually going to do? First and foremost they outright just said they are rejecting housing first which is an approach that most service providers um, prioritize, which is basically let's get homeless people into stable housing before we try to address um, issues like substance abuse and mental health. But Escondido is saying they want to crack down on crime that exists among homeless people. Um, They're rejecting housing first and focusing more on addressing substance abuse and mental health crisis first. Mm-hmm. So the you you profiled the the mayor of Escondido before he he used to be homeless he had substance abuse problems that he talked about and I think what was interesting in that profile he talked about how he did get a stable shelter before he was able to get clean was there any clarity on like are they still hoping to get people into shelters Yeah so um you're right he was he used to be homeless and He had help from family members that gave him stable shelter and then helped him get into treatment to get clean. So they do want and recognize that they they need shelter, but they are likely going to create shelter that requires sobriety. So it's not low barrier. It would be a higher barrier shelter. And they want to prioritize Escondido residents first. So there's kind of been a theme with Escondido where frustrations have been rising about they just kind of feel like they have provided a lot of homeless services for the region's homeless people. Um, They do have two homeless shelters where 
you know, the rest of North County, there's one other homeless shelter in North County. So they feel like they've provided a lot of services for North County's homeless population. So when and if they do create more shelter, it will prioritize Escondido residents and it would require sobriety. So they talked about this on Wednesday. What happened at the meeting? So, yeah, they talked about it at last night's meeting. Um, There were a lot of public speakers that came. Mm -hmm. um, I think almost all of them opposing it and asking the council to not vote for it. Um, But they ended up voting for it four to one. Mm -hmm. Um, And they approved the policy as it was, and they added a couple amendments. So the first one, which was a little surprising, was they are asking for a moratorium on building shelters in downtown Escondido Mm -hmm. and want to create a buffer zone around downtown as well so that basically they don't want shelter built in downtown Escondido. Is that related to what happened at the county? Yes, exactly. Can you get into that? Yeah. So um, a couple weeks ago, the Board of Supervisors had a meeting where, you know, they, uh, they identified a list of possible emergency shelters throughout the county that Mm -hmm. they could create. And it's county-owned property. Yes, Mm -hmm. county-owned property. And one of those um, sites was in Escondido. Mm -hmm. And so they were talking about the different sites. And the Escondido mayor came to the Board of Supervisors meeting, and he basically said, you know, we weren't asked about this. We weren't notified that the county is even considering this site. This site is in our downtown business district. We wouldn't want a homeless shelter there because there's businesses and businesses are impacted by homeless people and things like that. So the county at the supervisor meeting decided to take that specific site out of the list. Mm -hmm. But they did say that they'll work with Escondido and try to identify different shelters that maybe would work better for Escondido. And Escondido agreed. The mayor said, you know, we can work with you to figure out a different site. Now, with this amendment, it's kind of, in my opinion, a way to kind of um, re-emphasize that they don't want a shelter in downtown. So we'll see how it plays out with the county trying to find a site in Escondido. I suspect there will be resistance about where exactly a site could go. And with this policy emphasizing Escondido residents first, it would be interesting how a county shelter would fit in because a county shelter would allow people not just from Escondido. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about something else while you were in here. So it's related in, in obviously the spectrum of housing, which is this project in Del Mar. Uh, you've been following it. Uh, this is a, a great location along the coast. They want to build uh, a mixed housing for market rate housing, but also affordably restricted, income-restricted housing, and the city is not into it. And the developers going forward, uh, what what happened over the last few weeks? Yeah, so the developer of this project, the project's called Seaside Ridge. Um, so they've been trying to get this project going for, I think, over a year now. We've been following it since last May. So, um, But the city keeps telling them to resubmit their application, your application isn't right. And it's because Seaside Ridge says they want to use the builder's remedy to build this project. And that basically means that 
in Del Mar, their housing element, which is the document they're supposed to get approved by the state, it lays out their plan for housing and affordable housing. Um, Their housing element was rejected a few times by the state. And when Seaside Ridge submitted the application, Del Mar's housing element wasn't yet approved. So state law says if a city's housing element isn't approved, then any developer who wants to build something basically can if it fits, you know, some of the criteria, but basically they have a lot of leeway to get pretty much any project approved. So this has been a theory, obviously played out in in some areas of LA and other places, but it's been a theory. We haven't actually seen somebody use that power to kind of override a city and its its land use decisions. And that's what could potentially happen here. Did, Did Del Mar get a housing element approved after that? Yes, yeah, so they finally got their housing element approved a few months ago, but they're, according to state law, because the application initially was submitted when their housing element wasn't approved, all of those rules still apply, so the builder's remedy still applies. So like you said, we haven't really seen how the builder's remedy plays out yet. We've seen a couple cities try to use it, um, but it's again kind of similar to the Del Mar situation cities and the developers going back and forth and back and forth. This is the first time I think we're seeing a developer sue a city on the grounds of builder's remedy. So this is the first time I think we're going to actually see if this is going to work. Tigus Lane, always interesting stuff from North County. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, longtime listeners and readers of Voice San Diego know that we've had a lot of emphasis over the years on education, of course, but also uh, on a series of stories we did about educators who had been accused of misconduct and uh, especially assault or abuse of some of their students' grooming issues, uh, texts, just horrible stuff. But uh, there was a common theme through that of just them being accused, it being substantiated, them even settling in some cases and and being you know forced to leave, but still being allowed to educate students. And uh, a really um, awful one, I think, was revealed by you, Jacob, this week in a big story we posted on Monday about Roosevelt Middle School. Uh, give us the the summary. So a business insider reporter, Matt Drange, did, did a big story that where he um, essentially obtained records from from districts across the country. And, and one of the records that he, he found was from uh, San Diego Unified about this teacher named Bruno Shonian. Uh, and essentially, Bruno's story um, started... Uh, and essentially, Bruno's story, in his story, we see... A lot of the themes that that Voices Reporting has has touched on for years, right? Complaints piled up. Um, uh, even so, he was not removed from the classroom. And when he finally was removed from the classroom, it was a retirement agreement um, that was essentially, you know, kept under wraps and by the language in the agreement. Uh, oftentimes, when these things happen, California's Commission on Teacher Credentialing end up taking teachers' credentials away if they do their own investigation and and can also substantiate the allegations against teachers. Uh, But in this case, both the district and the commission seem to have just failed uh, to keep, um, to hold Bruno, to hold Shoney accountable for his actions. and, And it ended up falling on 
county pro- or San Diego prosecutors to to finally get this guy out of the classroom for good. Okay, well, let's review. So first, he was uh, there. Were the the accusations sort of amounted. Uh, finally, one of them really caught attention when he was accused of grabbing a a, a student's butt. Yeah. So so back in 2015. Um, Ultimately, three girls uh, from one of his eighth grade classes um, approached approached staff at, at Roosevelt and said uh, various things. One said that he had he had tried to grab her backpack, but actually grabbed her butt. Um, uh, another also said that that he told her that she has nice boobs, um, and that he'd asked. Uh, students, whether or not their their parents were single, all of these things that that just very very clearly cross the line in a whole lot of ways. Um, ultimately, Bruno essentially got a a, a slap on the wrist. Um, he was warned about his behavior, but it doesn't seem that there was any real action that was taken. But it is also very very clear that um, educators, even after this inc- incident, even after not removing him from the classroom, even after not really suspending him or, or, or disciplining him in any real way were concerned about his actions because later documents show, uh, and I'll just, I'll just read this, this part for you. Later documents show, um, vice principal at the time, Karina Reyes wrote the following year, 2015, 2016, we made a change to Mr. Shonian's teaching assignment to have him working with younger sixth and seventh grade students, partly because we did not want him working with more mature eighth grade girls, which in retrospect is just a truly shocking thing to to read. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I think it's dark. It's Mm -hmm. frightening. They have made the decision, as she says, that he needs to be dealt with. He cannot be around these girls. We're going to move him to others because they're essentially not more not as likely to attract his attentions and it's this sort of implicit victim blaming going on right this is an attempt to change this guy's actions not by actually changing his actions but changing who's who he's exposed to and that's just it's great girls are too mature too developed and just the the subtext of that phrase in and of itself is is enough to make your head spin but it it really is an appalling appalling response to this I, i think that's what's so hard about this is because she she's clearly worried she's clearly working on it but when you when you when you make the determination that somebody is that dangerous or that much of a problem it it seems like our our entire reaction as as humans in in charge of the safety of of kids should be well then do whatever you can to keep him away from all of them like you should like like throw yourself in front of the door yeah. to keep it from happening because uh, there's no there's no circumstance where it's okay a- after that point. And that's the the sort of heart of this problem is that over and over and over again, they have they have never seemed to recognize the gravity yeah. of of the accusations that they substantiate and and what should happen because of them. It's like they they're just they're they feel so overwhelmed by the regulations or the the rights of the uh, employee or something that they, they they it doesn't even occur to them that they need to again throw themselves in front of the door to not allow it to go forward. And just to underline the point of that gravity, I mean, 
you know, we in these documents are are written accounts from from these three girls who who you know reported him back in 2015, and and they're they're chilling, especially given what comes next. Here's here's one small expert excerpt from one. Uh, a girl wrote, he talks to us so sexual and it really bothers me. He looks at us with this sexual look that just scares me really bad. I have never felt this scared to talk to a teacher. That's an eighth grader writing about a teacher and reporting the, his behavior to a staff member. And and what did they do? They moved him to be with younger children. Yeah, I think the it, what really grabbed me with this story too, like I found it really shocking was... One, how the complaints and the, you know, kind of like disgusting actions on his part progress throughout time, right? Like it started mm-hmm. with him like oversharing personal yeah. details, yeah. then making comments about students' bodies and their boobies mm-hmm. and, you know, like making these really uncomfortable comments. And also like faculty members also complained about his behavior. Yeah, so you have yeah. like full on grown adults <laughs> yeah, uh, that- making complaints against this teacher and then to, you know, physically touching somebody and then to like approaching a student and sort of kind of asking them like, you know, maybe we can meet at the mall and Mm -hmm. kind of like setting up the stage for, you know, something much more dark. Yeah, that's and and there's clearly an escalation of behavior throughout all this. As you as you touched on, you know, this begins with students, but then over the years, uh, it it, fellow staff members start to complain about him, too, and say Mm -hmm. that he's he's sexually harassing them, making comments about their bodies, sexualizing their bodies, yada, yada. Uh, and, and to be clear, Shoni in, in, a, in a long, long conversation with me has denied all of this. Um, that's also included in in the, the the story. But from the perspective of, of the administrators at this school, they write over and over again in these warnings because, again, there are five, four or five different instances of, of allegations against him. Eventually, administrators start to say, we are noticing this pattern, right? A pattern is is developing of you engaging in sexual harassment. Yeah, but this is May 2018 when Reyes, the same uh, administrator, finally says like, okay, I'm now deeply concerned. Yeah. This needs to change. There's enough documentation. And she writes that in a letter to, to we can only assume central office staff, the, the recipient of the letter is not included. And this is, this is where my heart sank in the story. They didn't do anything. They did nothing. <laughs> they did nothing. Okay. So, so from there, right. May of 2018, uh, we, we fast forward a little bit. We fast forward, uh, one year, almost exactly. Right. And this is when the final allegation comes, the one that would end Shonian's career, the one that would lead him to plead guilty of a misdemeanor. Um, a girl approaches a staff member and says that that Shonian, who had been her teacher a couple of years earlier, this is an eighth grade girl, had approached her after school and essentially asked her to come to the mall with him, in addition to making a whole bunch of other uh really suggestive comments you know at one point she alleged that he said you know i can't wait until you're 18 four years is a long time and you can do whatever you want he's asking her if you know she has to be accompanied by an adult when she goes out Uh, he's giving her his number um you know telling her to call him on a payphone because he doesn't want there to be mobile evidence uh, he told her, you know, I, it would be a shame if you tell someone, then I would get fired in jail time and I have two kids and I don't want that to happen. 
Um, I mean, all of this is comes from this this girl's report, which was again substantiated by by uh, the, the district's investigation. And w- one of the most just dark parts of this for me is that included in the investigation are text messages that this girl exchanges with with her friend after after uh, this incident. And it, and it shows those text messages show that she felt very pressured to, you know, kind of acquiesce to what Shonian was was saying, even if she didn't, you know, ultimately feel that she was going to meet up with him. She sends this one message. Um, we've added a couple words just for clarity. Uh, on the outside, I was like, and then there's an emoji that we is not included. Uh, oh my God, yeah. But inside, I was like, and then another emoji. I'm going to get raped. Ike, he said he feels very relaxed about me or around me. Ike, it just has to be us and no one else. And that he said you can get dropped off at Plaza Bonita Mall and we can go wherever. Uh, and the girl's friend replies, scary. And then the girl continues and says that Shonian told her four years is a long time because when you're 18, you can do whatever the fuck you want. But he was like, I think it's time. And I was like, time for what? And the girl respond, the girl's friend responds for what? And the girl says, I don't know. He didn't answer. I mean, these are, this is a clear attempt to get this girl alone off campus. Again, an eighth grade girl. Yeah, so finally they they ask to suspend him, and he makes a deal with the the district. To, he makes a to, deal. He to, he retires, and as part of that deal, the district agrees to not um, not discuss with any potential future employers the circumstances of his you know having retired from the district. And, so that and, also led to a criminal charge, which is what finally got so that he can't teach anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, but had it been left up to the district. He could have easily gone on. Had it been left up to the district, it, it's very clear that that he would have potentially moved to another district. Right? This is they can only share per this agreement uh, the years that he worked and the positions that he worked. Which again, you know, is a is a chilling thought. Um, you know, ultimately the, the the frustrating thing in this particular instance is that the Commission on Teacher Credentialing also dragged their feet. Right. Nothing happened for years. It, it, it took the San Diego prosecutors filing two, two misdemeanor charges against him, one of which he eventually pled guilty to, um, for the commission to do anything. And so you kind of think sometimes about there's that, that metaphor of like Swiss cheese security, right, where things can fall through a hole one way and fall through a hole the other way. But eventually, because you have these pieces of Swiss cheese stacked on top of each other, you just hope that they hit something solid. And in this instance, it took San Diego prosecutors to get that security. And it's a it's a chilling it's a chilling thing that that I think that none of us should be okay with. Well, it's a challenging story, but uh, really clearly written and revealed. um, And I encourage you to read it at vsd.org slash Jacob with a K, vsd.org slash J-A-K. OB. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego, in this particular area of Greater Little Italy. And we're the only public affairs podcast that has plenty of workshop dates coming up for our parents' guide to San Diego schools. Meet us in person and ask anything you want about San Diego schools at vosd.org slash schools. We have that information of those workshops coming up, vosd.org slash schools. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andre Lopez Villafana is our Managing Editor. 
Jacob McQueenie is our education reporter. Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.